Hello and welcome to The Room of Lives. I'm your host, Neil. In this episode, I'm talking to neuroscientist Rishidev Chaudhuri about how he underwent an intellectual trajectory. He began with studying physics, which has the philosophy of the platonic ideal, and arrived at the study of biology, which is more pragmatist. In his words, quote, When I was younger, I thought that you could think your way to an understanding of the universe. As I get older, I'm more convinced that all of the interesting stuff happens in engagement with the world. End quote. Unlike physics, there is no fundamental theory of how brains work, and everything's messier. In this context, we ask, what is meant by a useful theory in science? At the end of this section, we discuss our views on the hard problem, the question of how consciousness appears in the material world. So you kind of touched on the pragmatism um, thing, but this is a whole other bullet point that he wanted to talk about, which is your intellectual trajectory, uh, which was more platonistic in the past, and uh, at the same time you were more interested in fundamental physics, and then you slowly kind of migrated towards a more pragmatist view. Uh, simultaneously with your interest in biology uh, increasing. So I want to talk about this, but let's first kind of break down what we are talking about here into definitions. So if you could talk a little bit about what is Platonism, uh, what connection does it have with fundamental physics, what is pragmatism, what connection do you see it having with biology? Um, okay, so... I guess I think of using Platonism as just kind of a shorthand for the sense that there are these kind of abstract formal structures that are really what underlies the universe mm. um, and that part of and that our intellect sort of attempts to reveal these structures to us. You know, so the classic example people say is, well, what's a horse? How do I know a horse is a horse? Mm. Well, one way is that, that there's, this, there's this ideal form of a horse. And then when I go out in the world and I see horses, I can compare that to, you know, my internal intuition of these forms, mm. this form of the horse. I'm going to try and match one to the other. Um, and of course, the worldly horse is an imperfect horse. And, you know, that's that's kind of a crude way of putting it. But I think you maybe see it in its cleanest form mm. in fundamental physics where you say, OK, well, what's really real about the universe? What's really fundamental about the universe? And so one perspective is. Well, as a human being moving around the world, what's fundamental is just, the, you know, the things I encounter, the things that matter to me in my life. But another perspective is that, oh, there are these abstract, timeless laws, you know, in some sense, these laws outside of space and time that tell you that basically lay out the script for how everything should act. And then we see the consequences of those laws. And then by looking closely into things, abstracting away from them, trying to move beyond them, um, we can start to return to these fundamental laws. Mm. And that these laws are the things that are really real mm. and everything else is kind of secondary or a consequence of that. Um, and, you know, I think one of the things that does is 
it gives kind of a part it, it sees you know reason and rational thought in a very unproblematic decontextualized way it kind of assumes that you should be able to sit down and figure out but it, it assumes that there is a way that the universe works that that's even a coherent thing to ask for and b that you should be able to sit down and figure that out and you know if you flip it around i think there are a few different things that get out of pragmatism but pragmatism basically tries to judge ideas and thoughts and you know lots of other things by use so the question is becomes less is an idea true maybe that's even a meaningless question but more is it useful is it productive um it's kind of like that cliche saying oh, all models are wrong but some are useful and a pragmatist pragmatist would say well i don't i mean i don't see distinction if it's a, it's a, if it's a useful productive model then it's true um if philosophers spend a lot of the time worrying about questions or like making distinctions that don't really have any distinction in the actual world um and so i think pragmatism holds ideas much more lightly it's a very rich intellectual tradition but it doesn't you know doesn't think that r- this this kind of this kind of process of rational inquiry kind of leads endlessly to some kind of foundational truth truths are contingent they're contextual um but and we should judge them based on how useful they are how much growth they lead to and i think when you're thinking about biology this starts to become um by the way when you say useful can we clarify a little bit what you mean by use is it predictability of a system or what so, what else so, so, so this is you know this is where you kind of see you sort of see the project to some extent we already have a sense kind of a knowledge of use that we can try and unpick and what useful is in one situation might not be what's useful in another situation mm. um but within a particular context mm. we can often sit down and agree on what's useful or not so we can sit down for example and look at ideas in computational neuroscience of the last 10 years and i think we can probably come pretty quickly for many of them to discuss to an agreement on whether they've been useful or not mm. um if you say well what's useful in general i don't know if that that has a particular answer and again in some sense that's looking for these rational foundations but within any particular context i think it's often quite clear mm. what's useful or not and we can argue about it we can sort of reason about it it's not that we're just throwing away mm-hmm. reason but we're sort of saying that it exists within a certain mm. context within a certain kind of set of contingent rules maybe within a certain language game if you like kind of like bit contingent language um maybe within a set of maybe within a set of customs and so scientifically you might say that oh this theory has been useful because it allowed us to predict something this theory has been useful because it turned out to be a fertile way of thinking about this other system um this theory has been useful because you know it kind of elucidated a piece of the puzzle and then it kind of led us to see another piece of the puzzle um and so on mm. and then i think biological systems are very interesting because it's not clear that they really is you know a fundamental theory in the sense of physics i mean so like evol- evolution obviously is kind of but even feels very fundamental but even that's a different kind of theory from a set of laws that you just run through and then give you particular things i mean evolution's riddled with contingency um and so if you're studying the brain you might say well what algorithm is the brain running for example that's a fundam- that maybe feels like a fundamental law question and again i think that's kind of misleading because brains different brains from different animals um and different parts of brains evolve to do different things in different contexts maybe what seems like an algorithm in one context is not 
algorithm in another context everything's mess everything's messier and everything feels you know there's obviously seem there seems to be less of a distinction between this kind of like deep fundamental level that you where you reveal things and then this level where you're kind of like unfolding it into the world yeah yeah um so now tell me a little bit about the the trajectory itself that you experienced like when 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 did this happen how and why i think you know maybe the, the sort of focal point started to feel thinking of like i said late and maybe it started sort of late high school but then through college mm. like being exposed to ideas again in like nonlinear systems realizing that even pretty simple rules mm. could both give rise to this baffling complexity but then also realizing that maybe the rules themselves weren't what you know what's maybe the most important or relevant part thinking about complex systems thinking about well i think for example like the example of statistical mechanics has been very useful to me you know that feels like that's a very different area of physics and the laws they don't feel any less strong in some ways but they feel but they're not a consequence of some fundamental yeah principle that that's that's then being mm. kind of unfolded mm. they're really statistical mm. um, like the second law for example yeah mm. and you have this phenom- and you have this interesting thing where you can have this many these many to one mappings mm. some sense of microscopic details of the system don't matter mm. you have simple behavior at the microscopic level mm. that's and if you actually try to go from the microscopic to the macroscopic level you can't um in any or you you'd probably be mis you'd probably be greatly misled if you actually try to take all the details into account um and then if you and if you look you've got to see this sort of thing everywhere like no one does chemistry by trying to solve the schrodinger equation for more than you know one electron yeah, or something yeah, like yeah. that yeah um and so it turned out that well you know what seems to be fun we have all of the simplicity and theory building at all these levels that doesn't seem grounded on some fundamental thing and on some sort of fundamental law of physics and doesn't seem to be reducible to it and then you know there's all the speculation that in physics too once you drill down sort of to deep enough levels you kind of you know maybe these fundamental laws are actually something closer to the laws of statistical mechanics or thermodynamics they themselves emerge from some sort of um chaos and confusion um and so i think that's kind of one thread that really got stronger as i got interested in neuroscience and biology um I guess maybe the the other big thread is sort of personal. I think when I was younger again I thought that you could really think your way to an understanding of the universe, you could think your way to some kind of enlightenment that a philosopher for example was someone who could sit down and think out, you know, think and figure out what was the good life and um what is truth and what do all these things mean. And I feel like as I get older I get increasingly less convinced of that and more convinced that all of the interesting stuff happens in engagement with the world in encounters it's kind of contingent it's often non-rational people are not primarily these abstract rational beings people um are primarily something else and we can talk it's interesting to talk about what that something else is but whatever that something else is if i just look at how i feel put together what motivates me how i go about my day I feel like this kind of abstract rational piece feels like only a very small piece of only feels like only a very small part it's a very important part and it kind of drives most of my work but it doesn't feel it feels like there's almost like a philosophical mistake to take the small piece of what a human being is and really say well that's that's where we get mm. truth and so and so then if you say well well if in the rest of life 
I don't think that we should be looking for fundamental ideas. I don't think we should necessarily be reasoning through everything. And that kind of like moves backwards into, you know, the sciences doesn't mean, doesn't mean we should be irrational, but it means the sorts of principles and ideas we look for are different. Yeah. Okay. So you said something kind of interesting there. By the way, a lot of what you're saying about your intellectual trajectory uh, very closely mirrors my own. <laughs> sense because I, I also got into nonlinear dynamics and mm-hmm. came into computational neuroscience. And as far as the intellectual trajectory is concerned, uh, it has kind of been the same for me. Mm-hmm. But I feel like in some ways, um, mine has swayed to more radical extents. <laughs> but maybe not. I don't know. But you said, okay, so you said, okay. so More radical extents in what way? Okay, so we'll get to this. Mm -hmm. I'll ask you about your thoughts on the hard problem of consciousness. Mm -hmm. And I was thinking, what if Rishi asked me back what my thoughts Mm -hmm. are? And my answer would be that at this point, I don't really think that the answer will be in some sort of materialistic Mm -hmm. origin. So, um, uh, okay. But, so you said something about, okay, what if human beings are not just the... The, the rational abstract entities that we usually imagine ourselves to be, then w- what are they? Mm-hmm. So what, I- what what is it that you think, what else do you think comprises being human or um, being alive or, you know? I mean, they kind of a lot of, the number of interesting questions is, I think it's sort of hard to talk about because it's you're so close, it's hard to put in language. Um, I think, and I feel like well, like one very appealing set of ideas comes from Heidegger um, in like places where he's trying to point to maybe not. A, so, I mean, so for example, here's this example that I like, you know, philosopher kind of adapted, but a philosopher often sits and thinks about, sees human beings as kind of subjects acting on or considering objects and if you actually look at what someone's doing it's much less like that it's like as you go about your everyday world if you're hammering you're just hammering but you're not doing it in the way that a mindless automaton would do it you have you have things like goals and projects you're directed at things um you're able to use a hammer because it emerges out of some context in the world so there's all of this kind of rich human structure but a lot of it's um pre-rational and tied to it's, it's tied to behavior, it's tied to context. Um, I guess, you know, maybe in some ways, I only have a set of probably like partial unsatisfying answers mm. to this question. And I think, you know, I don't think there really is a good answer. I think I've been very taken by some like, you know, I think another person who's very important to me in thinking was Wittgenstein and these ideas that, you know, maybe these, these slightly behaviorist views of language, but thinking about language as kind of emerging from human activity and as being ways of helping to organize human activity and sort of really being grounded in human activity. And so I think often, if you want to understand what human beings are, I think the way to understand that is to look at what they do rather than necessarily what they think. Hmm. Um, And that often thought comes after. um, Well, here's another example I like, you know, the pragmatists like William James and people say that, well, we often think that you know, you cry because you're sad. You run away because you're afraid. But another way of thinking about this is, well, crying is part of what it means to be sad. Running away is part of what it means to be afraid. Um, 
And so they've kind of collapsed this distinction between this abstract unobservable state that then leads to an action mm. into that action. And if you push it too far, I think it becomes kind of a behaviorism that maybe that sort of loses a lot. But I think there's a lot that's useful in what they're doing. They're saying, you know, we we take this web of actions and activities and practices and then we abstract out of it mm. that and then we reify our abstract abstractions and think about them as these underlying states or these driving forces and they're not they're just sort of abstractions from mm-hmm. this kind of lived context yeah, yeah. but that, but i do think you know any particular field any discipline has a set of tools has a set of boundaries and i think it has certain things it excludes and i always think that's very valuable mm-hmm. to kind of so, so for example i don't think that there's kind of a master discipline that yeah, yeah. um i don't think reality has to be non-contradictory yeah um but i'm not you know quite sure what makes the Mm. And I think it's a very th- sort of interesting. They all these, you know, they're different answers and like, yeah. But this traditions of Zen, or, um, but I think there's this kind of trope that mm. is kind of like constrained. Yeah, it's like little rational ego is not is not quite right. Yeah. So, the nature of the universe is already very complicated, and the nature of our immersion in this web of causes and effects. But something that makes it doubly complicated is that this mind or whatever it is that's immersed in this web is trying to understand the web and it has a certain way of going about it and the human mind the rational mind wants to conceptualize and abstract away but that is a certain kind of bias that it has and sometimes it leads you to conclusions that are unnatural um you know so you've built this kind of arbitrary boundaries around some part of that web and you're giving it a name and once you give it a name other people will start using that name and people will start thinking of it as, as an object and as you start thinking of it as an object we interact with that idea in a certain way as a result or a consequence of that language and the whole thing is kind of sometimes i feel like is there an end to this rabbit hole of trying to understand things um and it's not i mean i don't think yeah. it's a bad thing you know i mean but this is also part of what it means to be human we are yeah. you know we're acting in the world we call things names yeah. we like bracket off objects and that all seems very valuable. I don't mm. want to get away from that. Yeah. You know, I think the solution is not to try and run away from the everyday activity into this kind of groundless state because I don't think that quite exists. It's kind of, in some sense, realizing that they both, you know, kind of being immersed in the kind of like the flow of everything without clinging to it, without mm. taking it for, you know, it's like the Buddhists always warn against clinging to emptiness. Um, and I feel like it's that you kind of you, you you don't you don't get away from it because you can't get away from it um because you're just put you're just retreating into another abstraction but again i feel like the pragmatists come to the rescue you know you kind of figure out what a rich and fulfilling life means mm-hmm. and that means different things at different times and the process of doing so isn't necessarily mm-hmm. rational and, um and then you kind of live in a way that's sort of open to the world and in service of that so um Here's something that I was kind of interested to hear you talk about. You you wanted to describe how the philosophy of pragmatism or behaviorism or the ideas of Heidegger um, inform us on ways of thinking about the mind and the world. Yeah, this is something I'm just getting started on and I'm mm-hmm. sort of hoping to, actually when I'm going back to India, I'm hoping to do a bunch of reading and thinking about this. I mean, so I talked a little bit about well, what are ways of the brain, thinking about the brain that don't foreground notions of information or representation 
um, that don't really, you know, there's still, I feel like there's a lot of what we're doing, we're thinking about, you know, like to use like Rochi's term, like the mind is a mirror. Um, we're thinking about, and I'm, you know, what, I, what I'd love to do, because a lot of these ideas especially are pretty vague. They could be f- full of fluff all I know. <clears throat> I want to see if I can put them together in a creative way and try and use these ideas to actually get insight into particular neural systems. What I'd, I'd really like to be able to do is to say, hey, here's this neural system that looks really complicated when you try and understand it in terms of information processing or representation. But here's another perspective that maybe, you know, puts the world back into the picture um, or tries to take into account behavior more that in some ways like radically simplifies it. And you don't need to have all of this philosophical mumbo jumbo around it to see why this is more useful than that in this context. Mm. And again, I think being pragmatic about this means means sometimes thinking about the brain as this big representational machine is the right thing to do. And sometimes thinking about it as this crazy dynamical system coupled to the the world is the, the right thing to do. And so I feel like in kind of like the more long-term philosophical projects, I want to take some of these kind of like slightly floaty ideas about thinking about humans as not, not as subjects acting on objects, thinking about brains, not as these representational machines, um, and turn them into actually practically useful ideas for understanding particular neural systems. Mm, mm. Though I don't quite know how to pick them apart yet. Mm. I think there's a lot of interesting work, for example, in the pragmatists that I need to go back and read. Yeah, I feel like they just feel like people like William James just feel so shockingly modern in so yeah. many ways. But it's interesting that you're letting uh, these philosophies kind of inform you and guide you, at least on in terms of the questions that you want to ask and the kinds of answers that you would prefer over others, depending on the context. That, that's kind of interesting then. I think it's one Maybe. of the fun things about neuroscience. You get yeah. to, you know, physics, it feels like, well, this is not true. It's probably going to upset the physicists, but it feels like we kind of agree on what questions we should ask. We just don't know the answers. Mm. And I feel like in neuroscience, we don't know what questions we should ask yeah. or how to recognize the answers when they show up. And that's, yeah, yeah. I think, one of the things that makes it yeah. really fun. Uh, I think part of the reason is that with neuroscience, you're getting closer to whoever is asking the question. Mm-hmm. And so things become kind of subjective there. Yeah. Um, so, okay. So as a logical extension of what I just said, I want to get your thoughts. This is just pure speculation zone now. I want to get your thoughts on uh, consciousness, specifically the heart problem. How do you think the nervous system gives rise to the consciousness? Or do you think it does? Um, yeah, I'd probably give you... What does pragmatism have to I'll say I'll probably be unsatisfying about that. I feel like, yeah. you know, I feel like there are a lot of, like, partial answers and interesting questions. It's not even clear to me that the questions is well posed mm-hmm. or like what it would mean or how we would know mm-hmm. if we had an answer to it it's not clear if we could have a I guess maybe there's there's maybe like kind of like a related question and how do we you know we have these good material theories of the world mm-hmm. and then we have this sort of like qualia level of things and how do we fit those together um, and at the moment I don't I mean I don't think we do I don't I'm not convinced that we will um um, you know, it seems perfectly reasonable for me for the world to be contradict to feel contradictory for us to have partial non-overlapping theories. Um, Could you unpack that last sentence? 
Um, for the world being contradictory? Yeah. Yeah, so I feel like, again, if you think that, you know, there's one master theory of the world, mm. then that needs to be able to explain everything and mm. not contradict itself. Mm. And so it needs to be able to explain both how, in theory, we could predict the motions of atoms and at the same time make room for some notion of free will and for some notion of, you know, subjective texture of experience. Sure. But those two are very different things. They there could f- be subjective experience without there being any free Yeah, but I guess they, they, but they both seem like things that contradict a purely materialist theory of... And so, okay, maybe let's leave out mm-hmm. free will. Mm-hmm. You still, you have this theory that describes the universe at one level, mm-hmm. and you have a theory that feels like it describes the universe at another level, mm-hmm. and you say, well, can these, can these, can I have one overarching theory that sort of accounts for them both? Um, and it's not, it's not obvious to me that that should even be possible. And so, for example, I'm sure like someone like Kant might argue that, well, we can only have, you know, our knowledge of the material world is structured through particular channels and can only take certain forms. And so it's never going to be able to explain everything, including sort of experience of what it is like to be a human being. Hmm. Um, it also feels like, as I said, maybe it's, you know, maybe they're just two different views of the same non-contradictory thing maybe we just have these contradictory theories mm. I think I think there's, lot, there's lots of exciting work to be done but again the kind of the flip side is anything I think anything we say comes from a particular position and is limited by the kind of resources and ideas and experiences we have access to and so I guess what I'm interested in is finding the most interesting or useful thing that can be said mm. rather than you know because a lot of the time they're problems that seem like they're a huge that they're sort of a huge problem that then turn out um just not that the, you know the sort of problems can often dissolve mm-hmm. um and so this might be turn out to be one of those but i think yes i don't know how productive it is to ask it in the abstract yeah i think you might one might want to ask particular questions like what do we mean when we talk about the experience of red in this situation mm. um and i think but yeah, so I guess that's why I said it probably wouldn't be too satisfying. Yeah. I think thinking about the neural correlates of consciousness seems as, you know, kind of easy problem seems more productive and I think will lead to interesting thinking about, you know, maybe qualia. Mm. But I'm not sure that it does. I feel like a lot of the attempts I see really start from within an incomplete theory of the world and then try and reach out and grab something that mm. it seems like. Why, what do you think? What do I think? Well, my views on this have changed a lot, especially in the last couple of years. Um, some of them have, well, mostly because of first-person experiences, either through meditation or through psychedelics or whatever, combination of both, or sort of thinking about these. Um, <clears throat> um, okay, I want to give you like a compact description. As far as the science of understanding how the world operates at a material level, like the physics, chemistry, biology, I think it all has its place. But I don't think, I'm not convinced that those pursuits will ever give us an explanation for what um, gives rise to consciousness. Mm -hmm. At some fundamental level, I just don't see, because... 
it's hard to explain this, but everything that we observe is within the realm of consciousness. So mm-hmm. in terms of what will you explain consciousness? You can only explain consciousness in terms of objects or thoughts or ideas which are all already mm-hmm. being held by this con- vessel of consciousness. Of, yeah. So you're putting the card before the horse. So um, I don't really think there will be a materialistic um, description of consciousness. If you think about materials, what are materials? Well, here is our raw sensory input, and we're inferring materials and objects from our raw sensory input. So you're already going several steps abstracting away from your mm-hmm. raw input, and then you're trying to explain the raw sensory phenomena through this, it's just, it, it's all kind of circular. So um, then does that mean that uh, this whole pursuit of science is kind of futile? I don't think so, because um, as far as we can see, whatever this is that we are immersed in, and I, I don't know how what the origin of this is, because I don't know what consciousness is, for all we know, this might be some sort of simulation. Mm. And in the real world in which this simulation is running, this consciousness that's playing this game or whatever is being given rise to by some completely different mechanism. And the brain is just this arbitrary thing in the simulation mm. that is kind of like a, um, is a distractor, you know. I mean, it could be that. I mean, there's nothing that you, your science can find out that would contradict that mm-hmm. theory. And there's a bunch of other theories of what reality is that uh, I don't see any experiment that you could do um, in 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 physics or chemistry that could invalidate those ideas. So for the moment, let's just forget about this big question and see, okay, what can science still give us? And what it can give us is it can tell us as far as the laws of the universe operating at a material level are concerned, these are those laws. These are the laws of the game that we're immersed in. And it seems like if you if you believe in these ideas of like kinetic energy or potential energy or material or atoms or electrons, it makes the whole thing very uh, clear. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's all they are. They're like kind of concepts. The only reality is the raw sensory experience. Mm-hmm. And if tomorrow that raw sensory experience changes, so for example, if someone's um, amygdala is firing a lot, but they're feeling like super chill, you know, then you would have to go in and hunt for a theory that explains how the amygdala could not be producing anxiety or mm-hmm. fear. So the cash value is in the raw sensory experience. And then, um, so then you have to figure out the new rules uh, of the game. Um, and such, you know, sort of paradigm shifts have happened multiple times in the past, sometimes prompted by radically new experimental observations Mm -hmm. and i feel like when it comes to understanding the brain one i would not be surprised if such things happen that completely and because the rest of our um science is kind of built on top of whatever this sentient being is observing it has the potential to topple a lot of this cathedral that that science is building depending Mm -hmm. on what we find out um for example, I was just thinking about this. What if, what if it, what if it turned out that you know, what if it so happened that scientists went into the brain, uh, thinking, oh, this, this is where it all comes from—thoughts, feelings, emotions—and they found just this gaping void, <laughs> and then everything would have to change. Mm-hmm. But none of the laws of, of, of science or chemistry or biology. Just we would have to think of it. Oh, okay. It just means that consciousness is not what we thought. It isn't originated by the brain. Mm. Um, so 
I feel like, I mean, it's all fine, the kind of science that I do, but there are certain dogmas that come with the materialistic philosophy of science. And a lot of scientists have not read about this or have not been taught about this explicitly to make a distinction between um, the, the science itself and the dogmas that it propagates. For example, one of these dogmas is that everything has a material origin. Mm. And if you press people, they'll say, oh, yeah, of course, we are not sure about that. But that's the kind of viewpoint that they carry around. Um, anyway, so there's a lot of questions there. But... Um, and the first part of that argument does sound sort of Kantian to me. Hmm, okay, your, it does. The first part of your argument yeah, yeah. before the simulation, I don't think. Yeah, well, I did a six-hour-long podcast with my roommate here about... And the, the, the question was, is life uh, a simulation? Hmm. But then I went into the Hindu ideas of Maya and whatever. I mean, there's this whole... They have this their own uh, ideas about what reality is. And it's some kind of dream where mm. separation is illusory, etc. But anyway, so all I'm willing to say now is that now I have... I have my... Uh, I know much better the limits of the kind of knowledge that uh, science like physics, mm-hmm. chemistry, or biology gives you. And I'm a lot more aware of um, giving up the ground that I did not, you know, rightfully conquer. Like, oh, I don't actually know if consciousness is given birth to by the mind, mm-hmm. uh, by the brain. So that's kind of the short version. Um, yeah. Well, this is the this is the end of the first part of the podcast. I kind of broke it up uh-huh. into two chunks. So if you want to take like a bathroom break or something, like a five-minute break, uh, and then we'll start with the second. Thank you for visiting us today in the Room of Lives. In the next episode, Rishi talks about the time he was wandering around Kolkata as a journalist and working on a cookbook.